Hello and welcome to Deprogrammed on Unsafe Space. My name is Carrie Smith. I'm your host and I'm here with my sometimes co-host Carter Laren. Hello, Carter. Hi. I How are you doing? Sometimes co-host. <laughs> You're, it's good. You're now a sometimes co-host of this Deprogrammed. I like when you yeah. do. I like because you've <laughs> gone off and done a lot of deprogrammed stuff without me that we just wouldn't have been able to fit in if both of us had to be there. So I think it's awesome. You've done a great job. So hey. today's the day of compliments. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> this is an awkward beginning to a show. We can cut this out. <laughs> no, we can't. We're going to leave it. Okay. Um, I'm Go ahead. Introduce our about, guest. Yeah. Well, I'm very excited about our guest today. So uh, you guys may have heard of him, uh, people that watch our show in particular. But if you're new to this channel, we're going to be speaking with Paul Rossi, who is a teacher who made the news in April when he wrote a scathing essay about critical race theory and what I what we usually call social justice indoctrination happening in his school and. Uh, Without further ado, Paul, welcome to the show. Hi, Carrie. Hi, Carter. Great good to be to, here. Good Thank to meet you. you. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Thanks for coming on. I would I would love for you for for anyone. Well, first of all, yeah, thank you for giving us your time and uh, the benefit of your experience. We have a lot of viewers who are parents. We hear from them quite often about who are you know concerned about this ideology in the classroom. So, but for anybody who doesn't know about your story, would you mind just telling them about the essay that you wrote and why you felt it was important to write, why you felt compelled to write it? Sure. Um, well, I was a, I, I've been teaching at a private school uh, in Manhattan for about nine years. I was, I'm a career changer. So I started uh, to become a teacher later in life. And over the course of my employment there, Gradually, more and more of you know what you what you do call you know social justice ideology started to make um, make its presence known at the school and the curriculum and the mission of the school. Uh, Anti racism became something that we fully committed to in 2015, which was earlier than a lot of other uh, schools at other institutions. Uh, so I, I had concerns about it then. I I raised those concerns. Um, but they were pretty much dismissed. And then, you know, as it started to get more and more prevalent uh, and manifest themselves in certain ways in the student body, I started to, uh, you know, I'm a math teacher, but I also had, you know, I was also involved in the culture of the school. Uh, I, at our school, we have advisories, which are small groups of students. And I started to see those discussions get more and more preoccupied with, with this ideology. And it reminded me of when I, you know, I think like you, I was in, um, I was indoctrinated when I was a younger person and, you know, it took me uh, a little while to sort of come out of that or integrate it with a, with a broader worldview. And I started to see that happening to the students around me. Uh, and I started to see it having a very negative effect on the students' concept, self-concepts, mm -hmm. um, their ability to speak freely in a class, their ability to share ideas. Uh, the kinds of the kind of culture of denunciation I started to see happen at the uh, in among my colleagues, uh, and as I became more vocal in my own reservations, um, now I started to see, um, you know, I, I would I would say I I didn't experience personally any any shunning, um, but I was definitely stood out like a sore thumb in some, in some situations. And I, you know, I, I felt that's, that's okay. That that's healthy. But at the same time, 
I started to see other of my colleagues become very paranoid and quiet and have private conversations where they would, you know, in hushed tones come to me and say, you know, like, I kind of have a problem with this. I'm not as crazy yes. as you, but I, you know, I, I too have concerns or whatever. And so I, and then the precipitating moment, why, why, which led to my writing of the article was in February of 2000, of 2021 this year, there, during the pandemic, we had a, we had these weeks, entire weeks devoted to social justice ideology or some special concern, cultural concern, um, and one of those was self-care. So we had self-care during the pandemic because these are kids who spend a lot of time alone. They're cut off from their friends. They have pressures of, of getting their assignments done. And then they have to manage, you know, being remote um, or hybrid. We had a hybrid system. So we, we had a week devoted to self-care. And at one of the sessions, inexplicably to me, was segregated by race. So you had white teachers and faculty in one Zoom room. You had BIPOC teachers and faculty together in another Zoom, and and the question of self care was racialized, and so wow. in, in the meeting, which is supposed to help kids process dealing with the pandemic, up comes the slide after some brain softening meditation exercises, which is interesting enough part of the pedagogy. Uh, up comes the white supremacy slide, um, you know things like objectivity, perfectionism. Uh, either or thinking, fear of open conflict. Uh, these are all tied to whiteness as a thing. And so the kids right. are free to interrogate their whiteness and to look at ways that they are white supremacists or participating in white supremacy. Uh, and I kind of had, this is kind of the last straw. I had been looking for an opportunity to model for the students a, a way to ask questions so that they didn't feel um, so you know, so chilled in asking their own questions. So I, I asked a question about whiteness, um, this idea of, um, you know, what is uh, white comfort um, or, uh, you know, white feelings in particular. White is now this sort of pejorative floating yes. signifier that's used to denigrate, you know, yes. any concept, right? And so just stick white on the on the front of it and it's bad. Um, and, Wait, and so just to be but anyway, so just yeah, to be clear, to you're in this classroom that's segregated now, racially right. segregated. You're in the white classroom and they're right. showing you this slide about how objectivity is part of white culture and right. these other, you know, things that we've heard of. Um, I don't know if these were on that slide, but we've we've talked about the Smithsonian putting out things saying meritocracy and hard work and you know, all being on time, that these are all functions of whiteness. So you're in this classroom. Did you ever find out later was the uh, BIPOC student of color classroom? Were they seeing the same slides or were no, they very different? different? Very different content. Wow. Yeah. They were getting, they were being told that, you know, they have special, you know, they have to overcome white supremacy and how they, I mean, they, they got a completely different thing that was really based on um, actual self-care. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So, but sounds anyway. like still in the context of you're you're oppressed, right? Right. And because you are suffering the slings and arrows of white supremacy culture, to protect yourself, you need to do these things, because you have you know you have it. You know the assumption is that you have it much worse than the white students in the other room, right? And it's because of those students in the other room, the, the, because at our 
predominantly white institution, there aren't people that quote unquote look like you, which is a, you know, this is a very interesting trope that's that's part of all this this pedagogy um, that you need this expectation that you you need to have people look like you to feel like you belong. Right. And belonging is, you know, the the fourth word in the DEI construct. Now it's DEIB. Um, so anyway, I had, so I, yeah, so go ahead. That's new. We didn't know they added yeah. a B. <laughs> oh, belonging, yeah, belonging is big. And it, it, there's actually A is another thing, accountability. Some people, so you can have an A stuck on there. You can have a B, but B is big. B is big. big. And, the, and the latest, um, the latest consultants, the highest end consultants on DEI are now insisting on B as a very important uh, addition. And that inclusion is not the same as belonging. What so is the, what's I their distinction? Me, what do they mean by B? It's, it's, it's really interesting. It's, it's, uh, you know, and there's some truth to it. The fun, the, the, the crazy is that, yeah, there's actually a grain of truth. So the idea is that inclusion is bringing people into the space, whether that's an institution or a culture, right? So, you know, I'm including you, I'm including the marginalized, but belonging is the sense of feeling like they have, whoever you bring into the space is a equal partner in the space, right? That they, they feel a sense of, of community and togetherness, which is, you know, which derives from whether that culture reflects the kinds of experience they have outside. So it's, so, it's a sense that it's appropriate for them to be in that space and, and, right. and, right. And you, and the, Can you and have, the, you can't have belonging without inclusion though, right? It seems like it's a superset. Yeah. Yeah. Ex I think that's right. So, so it's on top, you know, inclusion is, is it's kind of the way the analog would be kind of, of what, you know, tolerance, tolerance is sort of degraded now. Now you need to have something deeper than that. So inclusion is a little bit degraded in, in, in relation yes. to belonging, right? Can so I... now you have to move forward and we need to have belonging. It's interesting how this happens because, Paul, you're reminding me of a moment. I remember the exact moment when I first had a conversation. I was still fully in the social justice world. I was a true believer at that time. I was working in entertainment. And this, this was probably around 2011. It's been a while. And uh, we'd been pitching a TV show, this comedian, this client of mine, and after the pitch, the the uh, the woman, the producer that we've been meeting with was a black woman. And we were talking about a lot of the clients I represented have tended to share my ideology. And so we would go in and we would pitch these things from a social justice angle, these different comedy concepts. And I remember a conversation with this woman where we both were talking about how diversity is just out, like it's not enough mm -hmm. and sort of crapping on white woke people at the time we just we thought i thought they were liberal i thought i was a, that this was liberalism and so we were saying you know white liberals just you know they just want as long as they have diversity they don't care about inclusion inclusion is where it's at and it was sort of this conversation about mm -hmm. how we were going to stop using the word diversity and we were going to start using the word inclusion and we were in agreement on this but obviously we're getting it from somewhere we're hearing that and it and it just kind of trickles down and then everyone starts using that word. And then, and then like you're saying, eventually inclusion itself becomes degraded. And now there's a new word 
that's even more belonging is now more important, but eventually that will happen to belonging as well. Right. Right. And so it's, it's like, well, James Lindsay has some great stuff on this. So he talks about that the dialectic demands an increasing mm-hmm. radicalization of the concept. So, so since, you know, uh, culture Marxism or Marxism or, or, or uh, conflict theory in general requires, you know, a, a constant upsurging of, of more radical concepts to advance the dialectic. So belonging is the next, is the ne plus ultra of, of you know, the, and, and, you know, these ideas, I think they kind of leach down from, from the academic sphere and then mm-hmm. they find their way into conferences and they get sort of transmitted through the philosoph network of DEI into the practitioners and those mm-hmm. consultancies and practitioners that leaches down into the, you know, the, the teachers in the trenches that adopt these ideas. But each time it sort of descends a level, it becomes a little more ham handed. It becomes a little more brutish and crude. Yes. And then it, well, and then and it gets and intelligible to average people, which is like, yeah. Yeah, it kind of because, reveals itself. The mask, yes. the mask of the flowery language is sort of revealed to be, well, you're just talking about racism here. And right. then it gets to the kids. And then the kids just have a very crude moral palette, especially when they're younger. It's like, you know, whiteness, bad, minority status, marginalization, people of color, good. And then you just kind of, they just act it out through status games among themselves. Um, and so moral authority is you know you have more moral authority if you are a person of color. That's just it's just a fact. That's the way it plays out in real life, um, which is actually not a misunderstanding. I don't think of what no. is intended from the beginning. It's just been larded up with a lot of flowery words. Yes. And then it comes out, and then the mask slips, and then you kind of see, okay, that's what it's about. And, the, and and that's why I find it so interesting these discussions about CRT and what is, and you don't. Know, you know, the Mott and Bailey games about what is it really, but actually, you know, it's this abstruse concept that you don't understand, but really it is the, it is what happens in the real world, you know, how it plays out. Yeah. Um, I've often said out of, the, cause uh, I also had a, an entertainment executive get in touch with me recently, sometime in the past year who I hadn't heard from in years. And he had just been forced to go to, through one of the, to one of these DIE trainings at Warner brothers or something. And so he just, appeared to call me a white supremacist. He appeared out of the blue <laughs> to tell me I was a white supremacist. And yeah. I could tell he had just been through one of these trainings. And I said to him, I was like, do you understand why I left the ideology? Because when he knew me, I was in social justice. And it's like, it's because it teaches us to judge and treat people differently on the basis of race. And he said, a white guy who'd just been through this training, and it's trickled down, like you said, now it's at an entertainment level and a guy who's not very bright, in my opinion, he says, well, we must treat, of course, we must treat people differently on the basis of race. So he just admitted it. And so mm-hmm. Carter and I were talking about this and I said, it's sort of interesting because out of the mouth of babes, like kids and then morons comes the truth because it's stripped of all that academic veneer. Mm-hmm. That's the, those, those justifications, pseudo intellectual justifications for why you should be doing this and the way that they try to hide what it's really about. When you get down to like children will tell you what this ideology is. So mm-hmm. can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Like what age group are you talking about and how, how were you? Well, first of all, I want to get back to your story. What did you say in that classroom, and what and what was the yeah. fallout of it? But but a little so, bit about how it how it manifests in the classroom with kids. Sure, and, uh, I like to get to that. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, in the um in the Zoom meeting that I mentioned earlier, 
I, I asked what, you know, uh, what is a white feeling? Because the, the facilitator, um, a very nice young woman who, you know, is, you know, has done a lot of this. She has her own consultancy and she came in and did this, um, did this session had said that, well, when you see this slide of all of these characteristics of white supremacy, you may experience some discomfort. You may have some white feelings about it. Um, and I thought, well, this is such a fascinating, uh, just to figure that, that okay, our discomfort is now a white feeling. So if you have feelings about what, what we're calling whiteness, well, then it must be a white feeling. So, well, what is a white feeling? Um, and, you know, it's basically, she was, it was a pretty cordial exchange at this point. It was in front of 200 students and 40, 50 of my colleagues. But I, I felt like I need to do something here because I'm a math teacher. And if you're going to put objectivity up there and, there was a QR code also in the in the slide, and when you follow it, it takes you to this longer exposition on these concepts. And and one, and under objectivity, it just said the idea objectivity is the idea that there is such a thing as objectivity. And <laughs> so I'm it's like, the idea you, that the QR code would work <laughs> because of math. But yeah, I, I thought to myself, if I don't say something here, I have students that I teach that. Math is important to them. Math is important to me. If I if if I'm going to let this slide, um, it was like the last straw. So, but then it it it, it kind of switched into the white feeling. So I raised the question by the white feeling. So that led into a discussion of well, you know, white white people tend to be defensive when confronted with their whiteness, and you might feel this way. And and I'm thinking like, okay. Uh, and then, but what I was hoping would happen is that uh, other students would start to feel more. Um, encouraged to ask their own questions because I don't want people to agree with me. I just want people to challenge things. And I knew because students had been coming to me that they had concerns with this ideology and they felt that they couldn't speak up or question it. I knew they were out there, so I just asked it. And then I was I was surprised and pleased that it actually did start a wider conversation and kids were starting to, in the chat, were starting to say things like, you know, yeah, I don't feel like I'm ignorant just because I'm white. And I don't, you know, I don't really get it. Why are we being segregated into these groups? And it really started something. As one student later told me, it broke the ice. And then I started to see teachers ask questions in the chat. And, you know, there was a, I had a colleague that really started to put me on the spot and challenge me and say that, you know, I'm dis distressed that there's a teacher who doesn't go along with this here. And, you know, we are white and we have been white since birth. And that means that we are, racialized and our perceptions are racialized. And I, I kind of interrupted him and I said, you know, I'm sorry that you're stereotyping yourself. Yeah. And then, you know, this was uh, seen as a gross violation of, you know, I was, I interrupted him and that violated a norm. And the norm was, you know, don't interrupt. We have these very community norms, but another norm is don't, you know, don't assume things about people. And right. if, if you're making assumptions about whiteness, well, they've broken a norm based was, on the content. I was going to say, isn't there a norm you know, about don't be a racist? Like, <laughs> you, like you would you would think so. So, so you know, I, I am I, sorry. Sorry, can I ask a quick question about? Um, I mean, you've you've kind of articulated how some of the white kids responded to mm -hmm. um, basically having their quote whiteness, which I didn't even know was a word until the past few years, but whatever, like having their quote whiteness vilified. Um, mm -hmm. but how do, how did some of the non-white kids react to being told that like, 
objectivity is a white thing. Sorry, guys. Like, is that a... Did, is there any negative response to that? Because I would imagine I'd be pretty pissed off as a as a, a science and engineering background kind of person if I were told that those concepts were not for my race. Yeah, I and that I, would bother I, me. I I think it did bother some of the kids, but the way you know, I don't I don't have direct evidence of that. I, I feel that that's true because I've heard secondhand from people that there were kids of color in the school that didn't go along with this either. Um, but you were segregated. But we were segregated. And of course, and then, uh, you know, but I'd watched kids come in ninth grade and these are kids of color and they started out of the school and they were not racially, they were racially conscious, right? Because every, we, they're, we're a race conscious universe. I mean, but it wasn't such a preoccupation, you know, to the degree that it became over the four years of education about how significant race is and how it can, you know, it, it is present in almost every interaction so that it trains the minds of you know, all the kids to see it as a, as a crucial variable in, in any interaction. So if, um, you know, and I won't, I'm not going to say there's no racism in our school. Right. There are, there is, you know, there is everywhere. Um, but to assume that it's present and I think it led a lot of the minority students to, to identify and, and I don't blame them at all because why wouldn't you take advantage of the opportunity? Right. I mean, if you're given, if you're told by the adults and the authority figures that you are this marginalized, oppressed person that you deserve to have, you know, your representation, you know, to see yourself in, in, in situations and to, to feel belo belonging. You know, I don't, it makes perfect sense that you would go along with it. I think a lot of them did. Plus you have or any discomfort you experience is, is someone else's fault, which is right. A, right. It's and, a, you know, as a teenager, one of the things that you're dealing with is like, your own agency and what you have control over and your feelings and like how you can manage those. And it's kind of a, it's a convenient tool if you're a teenager to be told, Oh, you're upset about something. It's not your fault. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's always someone else's fault. Can I ask when were you, when did you, you said that you also were in this ideology for a while. I was indoctrinated at Duke university when fortunately when I went to school, it wasn't, it wasn't in K through 12 at least not where I grew up, not in South Carolina at that time. And so I didn't get it until college. I wasn't hit with it until college. When did you fall into it? And were you a true believer or did you just sort of casually pick up some of these ideas? And It was a vehicle for my identity. Like it became a, a way for me to, to separate from my parents, I think developmentally. Mm -hmm. and, and I got it early. I got it in high school. I mean, I, oh. I grew up in a very progressive college town, so it was already pretty left, left liberal. Um, and even in the '80s, when I was, you know, teenager in high school, wow, um, it was very. We had a very progressive. We had some very progressive teachers, and there was a sense that, you know, the U.S. United States foreign intervention was big at the time, and the fact that we had caused so much chaos and and done terrible things around the world that was also influencing it. So, started to sort of it hadn't advanced, of course, to what we see today, but this idea of defining yourself outside as outside of the grand narrative 
And then I would argue with my parents. And then when I went to college as an undergrad, I would, you know, we studied, I actually studied, uh, I was an English major, French literature major. And so I got into critical theory and postmodernism in the late eighties. That was the big, you know, that was, that was the heyday of sort of high postmodernism. So it started, I started to obsess about language and discourse and uh, oppression sort of transmuted from just material oppression to the, the idea of disc- discursive violence mm. and the domination of a conversation or we, you know, the, the bringing in of, of unheard marginalized voices, this idea of power. humanitarianism and egalitarianism and, and the, the idea of truth as being a power game. You know, all that stuff was active at the time. Yeah. And other, other people have discussed, you know, this uh, at great length and it was very true but, for me. And, but that's, that's interesting. Thank you for sharing that with me. Cause it is, it was a, for me as well, it became a part of my identity. And I think that's why it's so hard. We get a lot of people who ask, you know, um, my kids coming home from college, calling me a white supremacist or part of the patriarchy or what have you. And, how can I talk to them about this stuff? And I think one of the reasons it, it's hard to um, come out of it is because it, it, it attaches itself to your idea of who you are. It is all about identity. And adolescence, they're, they're not a period of identity formation. So it, yeah. it provides, it gives you a heroic, uh, it's sort of a cipher you can inhabit and you can be a voice for change and, and heroic. You're part of a grand continuum of history. You become it ennobles it. I mean, I can speak for myself. It ennobled me. It gave me an, uh, you know, based on the, based on the schema of being a white guy, you don't have, your existence is part of the problem. So for me, latching onto it was even, was even more sort of, uh, uh, I want to say like more of a blessing Mm -hmm. because now like, uh, but I was one of the, I was fighting in the cause of justice. And so like, and then I w- then of course, in reaction, I had to push myself away from my parents because my parents, yes. being middle class, successful people, you know, generally giving me a stable home, you know, that that was all of the things that I saw as being privileged about myself. I had to push them out, and I had to argue with them or yell at them, and we had terrible, terrible, you know, fights at the dinner table. I'm and, I'm laughing because it's it's all the things that your parents gave you that allowed you to go on to a university and learn all this crap. Exactly, yeah. right? Exactly. So, you know, like, you raised the ingratitude. If you think about it, like mm-hmm. the the flower of ingratitude blossoms and you know, you wind up spurning the plant that gives you life. I mean, it it's it's crazy. It's yeah. also reminding me of we just did an interview with Lily Tang Williams who was a red guard and during the Mao's cultural revolution, and she talked about the kind of den- uh, denunciation culture, this, this, where people would make these denouncements of their parents and they would have to do this sort of distancing of themselves from what was perceived to be any privilege in their family. And it's so similar mm-hmm. and, and you, it's so interesting. Well, so, okay. So you were in the classroom, you, some students started questioning, you got some pushback from one other teacher who didn't like that you weren't going along with this. And then, and then what happened from there? How did, how did you get to the point where you decided to, you wrote your essay first on Barry Weiss's Substack, right? Yeah. That was, I, the essay came out. Uh, I wrote the essay two months later. And so during this period from February to April, 
you know, because I had made a very public within the community question this and created this, um, you know, the conditions, I didn't create it, but the conditions for students to question, which is what I wanted, um, they had to have a flurry of meetings about the meeting because <laughs> the meeting itself was now problematic and had disrupted then broken open the school community. And so the language, it's so interesting because the language, the way they described my actions, um, you know, they made me a scapegoat essentially. Mm -hmm. And all of the, some of the, some of the teachers who had said things in the meeting that were actually supportive of me or my right to speak, they all recanted. They all said, you know, yes. they had faculty meetings about the meeting and I wasn't allowed to speak and all my colleagues were talking about me and my behavior. And they said, you know, I am, you know, I'm very sorry. I didn't, I was caught up in the moment and, you know, I thought it was constructive dialogue and productive, um, but I will do better. You know, I, 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 I t you know, I, I realized it's my white privilege that gave me the, that gave me that and I'm going to do better. And I was just watching this and I, you know, I had some colleagues actually to their credit. I had two colleagues I, that stood up. Or not necessarily that didn't agree with me, but but stood up for my right to speak and ask questions at the meeting. Uh, Choose a lot. We've seen this happen yeah. so many times in so many communities, and they always recant. Most of them. I'm so sorry. Back when I agreed with him, I wasn't. You know, after they, it's you know, they go through the 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 pressure of the social mob, and then they come out on the other side like recanting. Choose a lot. <laughs> to yeah, stand I mean, up for I, you. I, I, all I, I mean, just to have one. Yeah. Oh, I was like, wow. And, and this, this was, there were, there were colleagues that I had, you know, did not expect it from. It comes, things come from the unlikely places. People yeah. surprise you under pressure. They will, they will have people you don't think are, will have principles will, will. And people that don't do, don't, you know, it's, it's fascinating. You really get to see people in a clearer way. And I, I'm grateful for that. Yes. So maybe we should, can we talk about the fallout? Because you wrote, so you wrote this article, but there was fallout. It didn't end there, right? Um, it was the article came out during a remote week, so I wasn't going to come into school. I mean, no, I was teaching remotely, and then um, the week that the the Monday that I was all the teachers were supposed to come back and teach in person. Uh, I had received a, an email from a member of the community that was not physically threatening, but threatening to my livelihood based on the article saying, you know, uh, your life is about to change. Uh, you know, your career is never going to be the same. We're going to, you know, we're going to get you basically kind of thing. So I reported it to the administration. I said, you know, this person sent me this email. It was from, from the school email. So, and the administration said, oh, okay, well, if you don't feel safe, you should probably stay home. And I said, well, no, I, I do feel safe. I, I feel perfectly safe. I, I want to come in and teach. That's my job. I want to come and teach my students. And, and uh, I'm, I'm just flagging this for you so that you can see that, that you can handle it. I trust that you will handle this as the administration. And they said, well, um, this person has made their, their feelings known about your opinions. And we're going to be polling the rest of the community to find out how they feel about you. <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, I said, well, you know, and until then, you should stay home. And I said, well, that's interesting. So uh, a member of the community issues a threat, and I'm the one that's supposed to stay home? That seems kind of odd. 
Uh, and they trying to they tried to manipulate it so that you didn't realize that that's right. why you were staying home. They tried to get you to yeah. voluntarily yeah. stay. Yeah, be like, home. oh, you don't yeah. feel safe. No, I feel safe. I just want you to do your job. Yeah. Uh, so so the upshot was the final email was you know actually stay home, and we're going to reassign your classes. And um, I still had a contract offer on the table for the following year, but it stipulated in that contract based on what happened in February, I had to, in order to, uh, to keep my job, I'd have to attend a restorative justice session where I could address the harm that I caused by my questions <laughs> to the students wow. of color and the other students in the community. So yeah, so you're merely asking a question. But when I look back on it, I realized uh, they also issued, a, they had a statement written from the administration that every teacher had to read to every student at the same time of the day about what had happened and what I had done and recommitting the school to its anti-racist goals of undoing racism. They're going to undo it, uh, which means making up for the legacy of racism at the school, which is the way they describe their own history. And, uh, you know, my, my, you know, I would, uh, as I described in the article, I actually walked around and listened to entire teachers telling entire classrooms, reading this letter word for word. Um, about my actions and uh, they actually had to get somebody to read it to my own students because they didn't want, you know, I had to tell them, do you want me to read my, <laughs> this letter to my own students? They're like, no, 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 we'll get someone to read it for you and you just stay in your office. So, uh, so that was kind of surreal. And then a student came to me to support what I had said in the meeting. And as I describe in the, in the article, he was extremely nervous that he would be seen coming into my office to give me, to talk to me. And that he feared retaliation from one of his other teachers because, and he was checking for cameras in the hallway. Like, I don't want, I was like, what's wrong? He said, I don't, I don't want this other teacher to see me. Um, and this teacher is someone who had reprimanded him earlier for having a conservative opinion, a, not even a conservative opinion. It was, it was about something like capitalism is fine. Why do, why are we against capitalism? So like, I mean, the, the place is pretty crazy. So a harmful uh, opinion, clearly. Yeah. A harmful opinion. Very, and, very and, harmful opinion. And, uh, and so I, uh, that was sort of, I was like, I gotta, I gotta do something here. I gotta, I gotta write this article. So I did that. And, uh, and then when I didn't agree to the unspecified restorative practices outlined in the contract, they said, okay, that's it. You're done. Um, I'm not going to sign something without knowing what it is. I would have, you know, I would have been interested to know. I would have liked to actually go if I thought that it was going to be something productive. Right. Um, and then they what tried I to use me. Sorry, that, that's okay. Uh, and then they tried to use me as they tried to say, well, it was smart. Actually, they said, well, we're going to, we're going to form a task force. We want you to be on it. We're going to discuss the policies, you know, our anti-racist programming. They call it programming, which I think is pretty indicative. And we want you to be on the task force, but you're only going to report to one person. Basically, they were going to put me in a rubber room and, and I was going to report to one person uh, where I would share my feelings with the assist, so assistant dean. But I, I would be segregated from the mate, from the rest of the group. So I did, it's like, no, I'm not going to do that. So, we'll so they, they can figure and if he likes this thing, we should reconsider it. And they yeah, can just probably. Use you as the yeah. Right. Like, oh, this one he has a real problem with. So we should do more of that. Right. Um, one thing that strikes me about show. how they. Right. 
one thing that strikes me about how they have behaved is they're psychologically they seem to be very aware of their own misbehavior and just the way that you described how they tried to get you to be like, oh do you want to stay home like instead of just being you know if i were reprimanding someone that worked for me which i've had to do in the past hey you did x y and z this is the reprimand i'm standing by the decision because i think it's the right decision but when you're trying to manipulate someone it's like do you want to stay home do you feel unsafe yeah it, it indicates that they don't feel good about themselves and I, I want to use this as a segue to talk about the leaked audio because that was fascinating to me as well. Um, and we we have it; we could play it if 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 you want. But can you maybe describe describe it? Yeah. Well, the setup, the context is that every year the head of school, George Davison, ha- to his credit, he meets with every member of the faculty and staff for a half hour to take their temperature and see how they're doing and how they've experienced the year. And our regular meeting was rescheduled for um, in March, which which is after this Zoom meeting of February, which which caused all these problems. And, you know, at that, so obviously the focus of the meeting was on my conduct and he had, he had pretextual reasons for reprimanding me. And he was very clear about what I had done wrong. One was I wasn't supposed to be in the meeting, although the meeting was mandatory. Um, you know, I, wa- I made the school look bad by asking a question of the facil- facilitator, uh, which was, you know, actually I talked to the facilitator and she was like, no, it was fine. Like, I didn't feel it was antagonistic. I, I actually chose to, to honor your questions. So that didn't, that didn't make sense. Um, and, you know, um, and I had argued with the faculty members. So those were the three things that I was being, so he kind of did do what you suggested earlier. He had clear, rep, you know, reasons for reprimanding me. However, the the way they dealt with my behavior in the school community had nothing to do with those three things. So it was clear that wasn't the main thing. Those things were, the big problem was I asked certain questions in the meeting that were uncomfortable based on content. But in the course of that, you know, I said, listen, you know, I, I, every time we had this meeting every year, or, you know, few, you know, three, four years before this, I had been talking about this was a problem the ideology of the school, it's chilling free speech, free expression. The kids can ask questions. They feel they'd be told that they're doing harm if they ask questions. And he said, no, well, you know, we need to protect, we need to create a, con- a culture where, you know, we do honor free speech. And so we would go back and forth about, mm-hmm. um, about that. But I was surprised this time because after he reprimanded me, I, I said, listen, there's a problem in the school. And this is what I was trying to do when I asked these questions. And he agreed with me out of the blue, like the clouds parted, the sun came down. And he said, I agree, we have a problem demonizing the white students. Yeah. I said, my my reaction was, oh, my God, Uh, finally, like, you see it. But then the second thought is like, and you have done nothing. You know, so like there, there was I was simultaneously, you know, gratified, but horrified. Uh, well, and he it, had to be led down the path a little bit. He was like, well, we're yeah. demonizing white people for being born white. And you're yeah. like, well, and some of our students are white. And he's like, well, yeah. yeah. Yes. I mean, I'm cross-examining <laughs> there because, I, you know, well, who are, this, who are these people? I mean, they're, they're, they're students. They're, you know, and, you know, that's only half the problem. I, I don't want to focus overly much on the white students because the, the, people, the students of color are also being given this narrative that's debilitating. 
and you know dehumanizing to them turning you know making them see themselves as victims in all in every situation but you know i was gonna i I, i'm happy to talk about that too but you know he focused on that and you know and that led into a, a longer conversation uh and you know the only reason I'm recording this is because I'm at this point I'm afraid for my job and I they had I, I had had several conversations in private, which up to this point had said very different things than what people were saying publicly. So I needed to sort of protect myself. Um, well, and they accused you of misrepresenting his uh, what he told you, and then right. the, that's my understanding. And then the audio came out, which maybe we'll edit, we'll stick in right here for, to listen to. Let me ask you something, George. Because I think those are, I think there's something very different about having a single experience where you make sense of it, right? And having a teacher, an authority figure, talk to you endlessly every year telling you that because you have whiteness, you are associated with evils, all these different evils. These are moral evils. It's not the same as taking like a physical thing because it doesn't affect your, your, your moral value. That's the problem. The, the, the the fact is that i'm agreeing with you that there has been a demonization that we need to get our hands around in the way in which people are doing this understanding okay so you agree that you we're demonizing kids we're demonizing um kid we're, we're demonizing white people for being born and uh, and are some of our and students white people that. what are some of our students white people Yes. Okay. So we're demonizing white. We're demonizing white kids. Why don't you just say it? We are, I, we are using language that makes them feel less than um, for nothing that they are personally responsible for. Yeah, that's the thing is people can listen to the his quote in in context and they can read it in context, and you did not misquote him, and nope. and these. Uh, like you said earlier, there were people coming to you, teachers, and who had started coming to you and, and voicing their concerns, their fears privately. But because of the culture of fear that this ideology brings with it, and 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 that it grows in an environment, people don't feel safe. They're, it turns people into cowards. Well, maybe they're they're always cowards, and it just brings that to light. Like you said, you learn things about people when they go through a crisis, and when they're put under pressure, you learn. You, I had a friend tell me once, you're not, this person didn't change. You're just see. you're able to see more of who they are now because of the circumstances. And so they're cowards, but they're also, it, it makes them into hypocrites who say one thing publicly and another thing privately. And that's what he was doing. Yeah. Yeah. It, I, I was, I was really, I was shocked, but not surprised because yeah. I had had, I had conversations with the assistant dean of the high school where he was actually incredibly supportive of me beyond. I mean, he was he was volunteering his own concerns on top of mine. He pulls down Jonathan Haidt's, you know, uh, book um, from the bookshelf um, and said, I wish I could. Yeah, I wish I could teach this in class, you know, but I can't. And, you know, that's a problem. We need to do something about that. But then this very same person was one of the people who in the formal meeting with me and the dean of the high school was the most, you know, he was the interrogator. And, and wow. he was saying that he agreed 100% with Ibram Kendi and he believes it's a useful tool. And, you know, we can have, 
we can have a debate between Ibram Kendi and this other extremely left wing group. And that's a productive discussion. <laughs> but we can't have debates. Be, you know, I, I was like, this is crazy. Like, I know you, man. Who do you think yeah. you are? Like, you, who do you think you're talking to? We had a conversation three months ago or, you know, where you said completely different things. And now you're yeah. going to you expect me. I know this is a show because you're doing this for your boss. And I know that you probably have your own career goals and that this is fitting. So everything was being fit into extremely self-serving, um, you know, uh, framework. And I just sitting there kind of like shrugging and laughing. And, I, you know, they wanted me to apologize. They wanted me to acknowledge the harm yeah. that I caused. They wanted me to fall on my sword and beg. And, and as I didn't do that, I said, I feel no contrition. I feel I am proud yeah. of what I did. And they were just like flabbergasted. I don't think they knew what to expect. And then what happened after that is they they just ratcheted up the accusations over the course of an hour and a half until by the end they were accusing me of harassing the students with my questions that I had I had caused grievous harm to students, you know, their their families, their histories, their ancestors. Wow. You know, and you're single handedly responsible for slavery at this point, but yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Like I have, yeah, just <laughs> I'm I'm in a white hood. And I just said, listen, this conversation is over. This is ridiculous. Like, I can't, I'm not going to let you get away with this, like these accusations. Um, yeah. So, but they were, you know, the, some of the ex excerpts from that conversation are in the article as well. But, yeah. you know, I, I just, I felt good. And the thing that was sustaining me that kept me through all of this was like, I, the kids were asking questions. The kids were yeah. starting to speak for themselves. They were, you know, whatever I had tried to do and didn't know what to expect worked. I mean, it, it, you know, it created the conditions where people could start asking questions, healthy, good, finally. And I was proud of myself and they yeah. just, there's nothing they can do to you. If you're proud of yourself. I mean, their whole weapon is shame. So like, if their you're whole not ashamed. Can, can, fire can you talk a them. little bit about that? Because we also have people who, um, a lot of times I'll get the question about, well, I'm I'm afraid because of this reason, this reason, and I I completely get the fear, and I don't I don't want anyone to feel bad for for having that fear because I know what I we know what that means. Like people have jobs they're afraid of losing, they have families they have to provide for. Um, there's the fear that the very real fear that people have, and I used to have of, of that social what people think of you. People adults care too much about what other people think of them. And, uh, you know, all of these very real fears that people have and and are dealing with. And and can you talk a little bit about what it's like to walk through that fear, though, and choose truth anyway? Because I think that's really inspiring to people. Like, would you change it? Would you go back and take the knee and apologize? And and what have you gotten by what have you lost and what have you gained? How about that? <laughs> uh, well, um at its worst, I was going to work every day because I did go back, you know, after February, I would go back, go into school. I teach my classes. I, I knew the kids were getting all these messages that, you know, I was, I, I was racially fragile. Uh, other deans had taken over my advisory. So my advisory was now, you know, joking that I was a racist and, you know, they, people like turned to get like, they, they did everything they could to sort of turn the school against me. Um, but I also knew that I had supporters among the student body because I was hearing things from parents. Parents were 
sending supportive messages. Some of the kids were like, no, actually, we don't think he did anything wrong. Like we, we, we think it's okay to ask questions. Like he was just asking questions. So I knew that I had a lot of quiet support. Um, and I also, but the most important thing is I, I, I had been grumbling into my beard about this stuff for years. I had been, I used to have a beard. So I was, I was going to say, did you used to have a beard? I I did. did. You grumbled so much. It's gone now. It did. It's I, I nodded off. Um, and, you know, pounding my fist at the table and just sort of getting like uh, calcified, gnarled, inward, direct, you know, resentment yes. and all this stuff. And then when I finally, and I did something, it's like a great peace descends because yes. you, you realize that, okay, I, it's out now. And people, what can you call me? What can you say about me? I'm, I'm, uh, you're going to, you can throw anything at me, but I, I, I'm okay with myself. I'm okay with what I did. Yes. And then you, you feel there is something untouchable which is sort of transcendent, which is within you, which, which needs articulation. And, and, it, you know, yeah, I, I mean, I'm open to learn. It doesn't mean that I have, I have total access to truth, but at least my best, you know, attempt at truth was articulated in some way. We had an effect, had an impact. It did a thing, um, you know, impact over intent is what they say. And it had an impact and the impact was in, was what I intended. Uh, so if people say, oh, you know, the impact is that, that phrase is usually used as a sense of harm, like, oh, you shouldn't have an impact. No, actually, use it in the right way. You should have an impact. And if you don't have an impact, you're not really alive. So it's good that you had an impact. Um, and it, sometimes things hurt. Yes, sometimes things hurt. But I think that, that uh, the, the good that's done, I, you know, it's not harm. People can use hurt and harm. But anyway, that's a whole other thing. But I just felt great. Uh, I, I'm i insecure. Of course, you get insecurity because you don't know what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a lot of offers from schools around the country saying, come in, talk to us. We we heard about this article. We read it. We, you know, we'd like to meet with you. So um, you know, even New York, there was a place that not it was, you know, an after school program contacted me. So you're not going to starve. You're going to, if you're an educator with, who has a track record and is other things were in place, like I got good recommendations or I had good uh, um, teacher reviews and so on. Um, There are schools out there. If you're a teacher that, that value independent thought, that value viewpoint diversity, that want to create a different kind of culture, um, to which everyone can belong, a culture of inquiry, a culture of, you know, um, what, what uh, Jonathan Rausch calls liberal science, you know, and kindly inquisitors. This, this kind of thing is out there. So I feel like I've gained a lot more than I've lost. I lost some friends. Uh, were they really friends in the first place? Probably not. Um, but I gained, you gain better friends. You gain new and better friends. Yeah. So I'm 100%. Wouldn't would absolutely do the same thing. I just try to do a little better. Yeah. I try to do it a little bit. Uh, you know, I, I it's really stressful on on the psyche to go through this stuff, and I really feel for teachers that are going through it right now. I've talked to many many teachers that are going through it right now, and uh, they have a lot more to lose than I did. I have I'm recently married, but I don't have kids. Um. I, I'm a math teacher, so that means I have skills. If I, if I burned, I was expecting to burn a career, completely burn a career. 
you know, I can tutor, I can go into, I can code, I can do data analysis. Like there are other things I could do. So I have less to lose and less uh, people depending on me mm -hmm. um, than other teachers. And I'm very aware of that. And so like I, everyone has to make their own calculation. Yeah. Um, there are teachers that actually have talked to me like, listen, I can't do what you did, but I feel like I could be useful on the inside. What can I do? I said, well, you know, there are lots of things you can do. Find parents, work with parents, create, you know, be, be the mole who can get curriculum to parents who can, most, most teachers in these content management systems, you have, like I had access to every, everything that all the teachers taught and put online. Um, I can get those things. I can share those things. You should know what's going on in your school. You should, you can help with transparency. There are lots of things that teachers can do um, without, you know, going out in a blaze of glory. Yeah. This is a good segue to what I was going to ask you next anyway, which is um, how responsive are schools to parent, parental pressure and what would you recommend parents do? Um, because I think a lot of parents just are, uh, they, they drop their kid off and forget, right? They don't, they're not even aware of what's necessarily going on, but once they become aware, what can they really do and do schools respond? That's a good question. Well, I'm, you know, my school is private and most, most, you know, I think only 12% of kids in the country are in private schools. So that's a particular, a particular context. Um, but I will, I will say that there is a culture, parents are fighting uphill. And one of the reasons they're fighting uphill is that, especially now, is that with the, the bureaucratization of DEI within the school and the number of true believers among the faculty administration, especially at a place like my uh, Grace Church School where I taught, you, they view the parents with a great deal of contempt. Like I would be an open contempt in many cases. The customers are being viewed with contempt. Exactly. The customers, exactly. How and Marxist. Yeah. So again, we talked about the ingratitude of, of this, the context that nurtures you, that allows you to have a job, turning against the authority, turning against the parents. This is the same thing, but translated into a market environment. So the people that's, that pay your bills are now the moral troglodytes, you know? Mm -hmm. So they look at the parent, they, they are assuming the role, the moral mantle of education that we know what's best for your kid. We will teach them how to be moral agents of change. Yes. Child soldiers. We are going to change society using the raw clay that you have created and entrusted us into our care. And, you know, as far as what parents think, if they disagree to the slightest iota with what we believe is morally correct, we're going to view your parent with contempt. And this translates to things, to other issues, gender transitioning, um, certainly ideology, all of these, you know, the, these are parents that, that, you know, are tend to be on the wealthier side for many of them. And, you know, the privilege is spat upon, but we're happy to take your money. Um, and that's the culture that they're fighting that, that within a private school culture, that's really what you're dealing with. You're dealing with like these radicals within the institution that spit on the parents. Um, and if they, if they disagree, of course, if they're good allies or whatever, then they're wonderful and we'd love to have you. Uh, so parents, when I know the parents who have been critical of the administration, the curriculum, um, the indoctrination, when they challenge it, they're put off, they're humored like I was humored 
to, oh, yeah, you know, we're going to working on that. We're doing, we're going to have a meeting about something later. We'll discuss it. They put off their, you know, and, and then if push comes to shove and be like, you know, God damn it. I'm going to pull my kid out. If you don't, if you don't do something about this, this is discriminatory. Okay. Bye. That's, that's yeah. the thing. It's a private school. They can do what they want. So this is a private school situation, public school. You got to take back the school boards. What's happening right now at the local level. It's very inspiring. Parents have leverage that I don't think they've used. And so um, it's hard. It takes time. You have to organize. It's, you know, uh, working, volunteering with some organizations. I've seen school board races that have get ugly. Uh, you get accused of all kinds of things by various power blocks. Um, you know, Ian Rao succeeded in, 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 in his district. We had another person that, that ran a great race, but didn't make it. Um, but these are the things when fits and starts the engine, you know, parents are going to get engaged and that's really democracy. That's really what should happen. Yeah. I think in the, in, in, you know, and so it's messy, it's ugly, it's in the trenches, it's the ground game. You just have to do it. Um, you got to put the time and effort in it. Sounds time like. and effort. And, you know, some, yeah. some, some parents have more time than others, you know, do, do what you can show up at the meetings, speak these viral videos going around of parents. It's tremendously inspiring. Um, and, you know, talk to your kids about it. Um, if the, if you're, if you're, if your child is really like I was, if they are really, um, far gone like if they if you were the devil and and you know they're arguing with you all the day you just um i don't know what to say i don't know what to say if i could go back and make up for the things i said i would i i, I can do it with my dad he's still alive i can't do it with my mom I and mean, I, I i i did um i did uh reconcile with her um in the last few years of her life and, and, and i have a good relationship with my dad now be patient. It takes time. Kids need to grow up. They need to go through experience. They need to have a job, a life, and then they start to see things more clearly. So all I can say is, you know, um, be patient, try to be understanding, try to ask questions. My mom would try to ask questions like, well, what about this? Well, what do you think about this? Don't, don't meet fire with fire, meet fire with water Yes. and try to be understanding and, 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 Acknowledge where the intent is coming from, right? Because the kids that are that that are trapped in this or believe this, they just want to do good in the world. They're just trying to find a way to be independent and do good in the world. And so acknowledge the importance of empathy, acknowledge the importance of, of caring about people, because that's where this comes from. It comes from a good place. It's just perverted yeah. um, into yeah. this doctrinaire thing. Say, you know, I think it's important to care, but we, you know, yeah, have, also we have to think about rights and where do rights come from i mean they don't even teach natural rights anymore i mean the whole thing is no they don't even teach know. basic logic anymore yeah anyway, so so, yeah. so you know find ways to introduce things that may because i remember things that my parents told me 20 years later i think oh yeah huh i couldn't i couldn't hear it then but now later you can hear it because it's there it sticks things that create doubt they kind of stay in your mind and then later when you're in a place to to entertain it it will pop up so uh, you know it's a, it's got to be terrible i really feel for parents that are seeing this happen 
Um, and, uh, you know, I, I just, just try to try to be patient and try to introduce other ways of looking at problems, you know? Yeah. I think I know we so have a hard right stop about... here. Sorry. Yeah. I, I'm trying to respect your, your time a little bit and Carrie too. I know you have a hard stop. Um, we should at least let people know how they can find you, uh, where they can read anything else you're going to be writing, where they can follow you on social media. Can you kind of let sure. people know? Yeah, I'm at I'm at Paul D. Rossi on Twitter. Um, D for D is in Damien. Um, and then uh, I'm working on a book right now. So um, hopefully that'll be out by the middle of next year. And I want to, I'm focusing on how does the pedagogy work in the classroom? I want to give parents a clear idea of what, how this plays out and how it plays out in the social structures of the school and, and the, you know, how, how do affinity groups work? What are they, what is actually going on? I think with a lot of yeah. the air discussions about the meaning of CRT uh, and, and the laws, like what's getting kind of lost is, is what is the student experience? What is the teacher experience? I can I can write about that. I can share uh, uh, what that what that's like. Um, and I have a lot of other teachers that have had experiences that I can draw on. Other students that have come to me. So hopefully I can I can do that. Do a good job. Is your is your second book going to be about white feelings? <laughs> okay. <laughs> There'll be plenty. I'm sure people are going to find a lot of white feelings in, in the first book. So maybe that'll be that'll be enough for them. <laughs> I hope Paul, well, thank you. <laughs> Go ahead, Carrie. Well, I was going to say, thank you so much for lending us your time and your experience. I hope everyone checks you out online. And when that book is out, you'll have to let us know. We do a book club. It's Great. free to join and participate. So we'll we'll definitely cover that one. And um, um, yeah, just thank you for being on. I think your last bit of advice mm -hmm. was spot on. You have to meet their fire with water. I love mm -hmm. that. Yeah, that's, that's something that, that I, I learned at the organization FAIR. That's kind of their one of their mottos. A foundation against intolerance and racism just to give credit where that's due and um and i'll be volunteering for other organizations as well cool cool all right thank you well, so much for having thank you me. very much yeah it was a pleasure okay. to talk to you paul thank you goodbye bye carter bye bye bye, bye carter thanks for watching if you're new to the channel we have a deep content library that includes interviews with everyone from Mike Cernovich to Megan Murphy, so go check it out. If you'd like to see more, please consider supporting the show by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on all the major social media platforms, well, mostly. And you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space chat on Telegram. See you there. Warning. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by the cathedral. Pay no attention to its thinky talk. The following co-conspirators have been unpersoned and will be recycled as part of our sustainability program. Don't be sad. You can't make an omelet without purging all dissidents. Honestly, I am worried that you have been exposed to extremist content.
If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks at the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.